0: And uh, today's reading is a, a new start in a new book, 2 Chronicles one through three, and then we'll get into John chapter twelve as well. But let's talk through Chronicles, Pastor Rod. Chronicles is—it's uh, got to be everybody's favorite books of the Old Testament, right?
1: Definitely the first nine chapters. I always read when I can't go to bed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah. You kind of go, okay. This this was this person's son, and this person's son, and oh, here look, here's all the gatekeepers, and here's all the people that got charge of of these things. But we come into Second Chronicles and we're coming off of the, the end of one of the most significant reigns in Israel's history in the reign of King David. And Solomon, his son, takes the throne at the beginning of Second Chronicles. And then it's, so in Second Chronicles 1 through 3, we kind of see uh, Solomon come to power in uh, Israel there. And God shows up to Solomon and asks him a question that I'm sure, Pastor Rod, you, you probably have thought to yourself in the past "Man, it would be great to have God show up and ask me, hey, what do you want from me?
1: Yeah, but now I know the answer. And it's, it's awesome because if God were to say that, I would say the same thing that Solomon would because that's what I think all of us need. Man, Solomon knocked it out of the ballpark when he he answered this question. And in fact, one of the things I'm sure you'll get to is the reason that God loved Solomon's answer, which chapter 1, verse 11, I think is key.
0: Right. And, And if you guys know the story, maybe you don't know the story, Solomon asked for wisdom. to govern the people because he recognizes in his humility uh, that he does not possess that that wisdom. He doesn't know uh, how to to govern a people as vast and mighty as the nation of Israel has, has, has become. I mean, think of this. He's inheriting this not from the lousy kings, but he's inheriting the kingdom from David, one of the greatest Israelite kings. And he recognizes his own limitations. And I think that's one of the things that God does desire of us is he desires us to know that we need him, that we have to rely upon him. And here you had Solomon as a young man, even uh, kind of a contrast to, as we'll get to later on down the road, Solomon's own offspring, uh, demonstrating a lot of wisdom, even though that's the very thing that he asked from God. As he said, you want to know what I need, God, what I would like, I would like wisdom. And, uh, And God responds favorably to that, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting. I think it, 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 that's a key point. It takes wisdom to know that you need wisdom. What a paradox of understanding there. But yeah, God responds to, and, and I think to your point, Pastor PJ, it re- he responds to Solomon's humility. In the first king's account of this passage, Solomon even says of himself, I, it, although I am but a little child. like He's not a little child. He's a man at this point, and yet he sees himself, uh, as we probably all should see ourselves, as someone who is in desperate need of God's fatherly leadership. In 11, verse 11, God says to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you didn't ask for possessions, wealth, honor, etc., God acknowledges that uh, Solomon's humility is what was so pleasing to him, and that's why God answered it so favorably.
0: And I think it's important for us to bear in mind, too, though, lest all of us immediately uh, in this podcast and think, okay, I'm going to start praying for wisdom because then God's going to give me all of these other things. I mean, God does bless Solomon, right? I mean, when you look at verses 14 and and through 17 of of chapter one there, it's kind of a a laundry list of all the blessings that, that God provided for Solomon. In fact, at one point it says there in verse 15, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. Can you imagine that? That that there was so much money flowing through the city at this time, and it, it's a hyperbolic statement. But at the same time, that it, it was like, oh yeah, silver and gold, yeah, it, it's as common as stones on on the street. It, we don't seek wisdom because we we want God to bless us financially. We don't seek wisdom and and feign humility because we think, oh well, if I do that, then God's going to do all these other things. Because there have been others example other examples of of wise men and women in the scriptures who god didn't treat this way right i mean even thinking of job at the beginning of job when god said there's no one else on the face of the planet like this man like job right and he didn't get gold as as plentiful as the stones on the street you could also point to jesus who was the wisest
1: of all creation and yet god allowed jesus to go through innumerable sufferings for our sake so it's not a guarantee to your point point. and even then in chapter one you also begin to see cracks in the foundations of solomon's leadership in verse 14, it talks about how many horses and chariots Solomon acquired, and that was against God's command. God didn't want Israel to do that. In fact, he told them exactly not to do that Deuteronomy 17. So e- even for all of Solomon's blessings and the wisdom that he displayed, it didn't mean he was a perfect king.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Chapter two, we begin to get into some of Solomon's wisdom, though, applied, and we see him begin to organize everything that's going to be necessary for the building of the temple. You'll remember that David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. Second Samuel chapter seven uh, in the Davidic covenant, you had David go to Nathan, the prophet, and say, hey, I want to build a house for God because, look, I'm in this nice house and and the the ark is out in a tent. Uh, well God had told David hey, you're not going to build me a house but your son is going to build me a house and so Solomon gets busy with that and, and starts to uh, reach out to uh, even some other rulers in the area to ask for supplies to make sure that he has everything that he needs to, to undertake the building of the temple and so Solomon's wisdom begins to work itself out there in chapter two um, and then it's interesting in chapter three verse one we, we read about the location for this temple Pastor Rod what's significant about the location of the temple
1: Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. You'll notice that it is in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, and that should ring a bell for you because Mount Moriah is significant for at least two reasons, and one of them is mentioned in the text in the same verse 1, and the other one is, of course, Mount Moriah where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, and God spared him and said, no, don't do that. He provided a ram caught in the thicket. But in the second account, you see here that it was also the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, uh, Orn and the Jebusite is also known as Arana, Aruna, uh, who was the man who was uh, in the area where God sent an angel to destroy uh, a large portion of Israelites, and this was due in part because David uh, David ran a census that he wasn't supposed to run, and consequently God judges him, and so he kills a lot of Israelites. God stops him at the threshing floor of Orn and the Jebusite, and so David memorializes God's mercy in that location by making that the
0: the center place of Israel's worship. In verse 2 of, of chapter 3, it, it says there that uh, it gives us a, a date a, or a time marker, rather, when it uh, talks about when he began to build the temple in the second month of the fourth year of his reign, um, if we look at 1 Kings chapter six verse one, it records that uh, Solomon began to build the temple about 480 years after the Exodus. And so, just time marker, we believe that this took place around 1446 BC uh, would have been the Exodus. So, 480 years after that, Solomon's beginning the temple in about 966 BC. So, almost a thousand years before uh, Christ comes uh, with uh, the incarnation verses 8 through 17 of chapter 3, we see the uh, the Holy of Holies laid out for uh, what it was going to, to look like. And it's a beautiful and ornate and just majestic uh, space that God has Solomon designed for the, the ark to dwell there, where the, the glory of the Lord, when it would meet with the people, would take up residence there in the Holy of Holies. And just thinking about Second Chronicles 1 through 3, that kind of the, one of the takeaways that hit me was just combined with The humility that we see from Solomon and then the focus on the temple and then kind of the culminating in the Holy of Holies there is God desires that humble worship from us as people. Um, It was uh, an exercise of humble worship for Solomon to go to the Lord to say, Lord, I, I need wisdom because I don't have it and you can provide it. Um, it was a humble act of obedient worship for Solomon to begin to build the temple. And it was certainly a reminder to us when we look at the Holy of Holies of of that humility that should take place there as well. So um, just a, an encouraging section, uh, one that maybe on first glance we read through and we're like, okay, Solomon gets wisdom and here's the temple. Uh, but there's some encouraging things for us to talk through with our families just as far as humility and everything else uh, in this opening section of Second Chronicles chapter chapters 1 through 3. New Testament reading for today though, John chapter 12 verses 1 through 19. And the gospel of John is broken down uh, by many into at least two key sections, more than that, but but two primary ones, and that is the book of the signs uh, which is chapters 1 through 11 and then the book of glory uh, which is chapter 12 and then following all the way through uh, John chapter 21 and the resurrection of Christ. And the the signs were, were the preparation for Christ. If you think about John's gospel, at the end of John's gospel he says, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have eternal life. Well, the signs all communicated something about Jesus. John records seven of them, and they're there to record something about who Jesus was to prompt that belief within us. But then after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, which has just taken taken place in John chapter 11, we come to John chapter 12, and, and Jesus is about to have the, the triumphal entry. In fact, in, in today's reading, we see the The Triumphal Entry, and that marks the beginning of his final week on earth before the cross. And so he's preparing for the hour, and we'll talk about that, I think, tomorrow in tomorrow's reading. The the hour will come, and the hour is the hour that, that God would be glorified through Jesus, and that would take place at the cross. So you've got the Book of the Signs, chapters 1 through 11, and then the Book of Glory begins here in chapter 12 with the inauguration. And we see a unique scene Uh, right at the beginning of chapter 12. Pastor Rod, we see a a woman come in with a jar of perfume. What's so unique about what she does here?
1: Well, there's several things to point out, but Mary is the very same person who, uh, who was the one who came and sat at Jesus' feet when he was teaching. Martha was serving, and she was busied about that. But she comes, and she brings a a jar full of fragrant perfume that fills the entire house. This was an expensive thing. This wasn't cheap. This was something that she would have saved a long time for unless they were unusually wealthy. And I guess there's room to believe that they might have been. But she has this very expensive, lavish, and for some watching, like Judas, wasteful in terms of what he what he foresaw or what he saw that she was offering but she pours it on jesus feet and washes his feet with her hair she anoints him Uh, in preparation for his burial, and in thanks and honor for what she had done for Lazarus. So in all of this, you see something extraordinary, extravagant. And if I could make a quick connection with our Old Testament reading, Pastor P.J. Absolutely. There is here a display of the kind of honor that is due to the God-man, in this case, Jesus Christ. But also in the Old Testament, you see the kind of honor that is due to the God-king, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Solomon acquires all the gold and all the silver and he does all this and he makes utensils and he covers things that are wood with gold. He just extravagant displays of wealth for what? To honor the king, to give glory, to give proper respect that is due. And man, what a powerful illustration for us today and the way that we use our resources. Who deserves our wealth more than the Lord himself? Mary's a good example.
0: Absolutely. In fact, this, 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 perfume that she brings, a lot of commentators will often suggest that it probably cost about a year's worth of her wages to, to purchase this. I mean, think about, I don't know, people listening to this, you make a, a wide range of money a every year. A million dollars is what I mean. A make. million dollars. By the way, if you have a building and you'd like to donate it to Compass North Texas, well, no, I'm just kidding. Well, only kind of kidding. Um, but imagine spending a year's salary on one thing and then taking that one thing and and using it at uh, in, in one fell swoop for one person, um, for Jesus, right? And you're right. It's this act of of devotion. And, and that's, that's what it looks like to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, though, is kind of what's pictured here, but not with financial uh, implications, but with the implications that are our, our entire lives. I mean, to follow Jesus really is a call, as Jesus will often say and has often said in the Gospels, you want to follow me? Take up your cross mm. and follow me right? That's an instrument of execution. Leave everything and follow me. That's why Jesus encourages in in Luke's gospel people to count the cost before they make this decision to come follow him because it's not about fame and success and riches here for us, right? Just like we talked about with Solomon too. It wasn't about the fact that God gave him all this. Yeah, he gave him all those things, but the the significance was his, his relationship with Yahweh through that humility that he had. For us, it's not about The success. It's not about fame. It's not about us here. It's about being with Christ then and there. And to be with him is uh, uh, an act of laying ourselves completely down to follow Jesus. And we get a beautiful picture of that with with Mary as she comes with this jar of perfume, which a couple years ago at our sending church, you remember we had the uh, Good Friday service where we had nard? I remember that well. It did not smell good. I smelled like that the rest of the week, I think. (laughs) It was so bad, man. It was so awful. But
1: But it was potently... Like, you can remember that. You can. That was the point. So, mission accomplished.
0: Mission accomplished. But it did not smell good. It did not smell no. good. No, I would agree with you on yeah, that. Yeah, it did not. Well, from here, we, we uh, yeah, something else on, on that passage? I was just
1: going to point out one thing before we before we keep going here. I, one of the things that I think you should think about as you read text like this, and again, connecting it to our Old Testament reading, is that God, uh, specifically our obedience or our adoration rendered to Jesus Christ, is worth our most extravagant devotion, uh, our most extravagant sacrifices. For some of us, we're afraid to give God our first and best because we're afraid we're not going to get it back. We might lose some really good thing because of what we think is a stingy God. But quite to the contrary, Jesus is about to give the most lavish and expensive gift. He could give all humanity. He gave himself. Is he not worth our extravagant sacrifices of devotion? Pound this away in your families. Mm-hmm.
0: Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it, your kids may sit there and say, "Well, I don't, I don't feel like I have much to, to give. I, I don't, I don't have much to give." Mm-hmm. How, so, Pastor Rod, how can we help our kids, maybe little ones, young ones, understand this notion of sacrificing for Jesus when they don't? really how much that they can sacrifice for jesus man it
1: makes all the difference in the world that they learn to practice that when they don't have much right to whom much is given much is required to whom little is given i guess less is required to flip that on, on its head but jesus entrusts us with what we can be responsible for he who is faithful in little jesus says is faithful in much and therefore when we're trying to teach our kids or we're trying to lead our families in doing this we're, we're trying to show them here uh here's your allowance of ten dollars Now, I want you to take two of those dollars, and I want you to give them to this thing or that thing. I want you to save it, give it to the church. you you got to know that early on in your family's life, practicing these things just takes effort on your part to teach it, to train it, and to reinforce it. And to help them understand, even in their little hearts, man, God is faithful. And he's not going to let you go hungry or starving. Man, I bring this up to my kids all the time. I was just having dinner the other day and say, guys, look at this. We have another meal. Have you ever been starving because we didn't have enough money to buy food? And, of course, the answer is no. God is faithful. Bring that up all the time. Absolutely,
0: 100%. Well, we do move on from there as Jesus uh, it, it goes on to enter into Jerusalem, which he had done many, 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 many times prior to this. But this one's unique. This one's significant. Um, this one, he enters into Jerusalem riding on uh, a specific kind of an animal. Pastor Rod, what does he come riding on? <laughs> I know the answer to this one. It's a, a a donkey, a foal, right? A foal. A, <laughs> a foal, yeah. <laughs> not not a war steed, not uh, I what else? Not a you tank. Ride. Not a camel, right? Not a Ferrari. Not definitely I guess not a Ferrari have that in those days. Yeah. Yeah, he comes on a, on a donkey, but there was that was screaming something about Jesus as he was coming in because of a passage in the Old Testament that mm. uh, John actually references here. Um, and that passage in the Old Testament was actually from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says that Jesus would come into Jerusalem, would come to Israel uh, humble and, and lowly, mounted on a, a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. Um, that's quoted there in our text in verse 15 in John chapter 12, where it says, fear not daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And so when Jesus has his disciples go and grab this colt and bring him to, to him to, to ride into this, this city, uh, he's doing that knowing full well that this is dripping with messianic significance, that he is making a, a bold statement that the crowds don't miss because the crowds respond. And what do they say? They say, "Hosanna."
1: Hosanna. They See, the crowd understood exactly what he was doing, and they responded in kind, which is what makes it so significant, because at least at this point in Jesus' ministry, what an incredible thing. They're responding the way that you would hope they respond. This, this, And this is so disappointing in the scriptures, because you get this like, oh man, they're responding the right way, they're doing what they should do, they're believing, and yet this same crowd, just a few days later, is not going to be on his side. Right.
0: Right. Right. and it, But yet one of the, the greatest things that I love about this is the response of the Pharisees towards the end. As they see the crowds doing this, they say the whole world has gone after him. And I think as we think about this text, that's something that we can take away and that we can encourage uh, a couple of things, a couple of thoughts here for us with our families. Number one, um, when you think about the little ones sitting around your table, I, I hope that you're praying every single day that they will one day go after Jesus, that they will follow Jesus, right? Not just that the whole world, but let's start with our families and, and do everything that we can to help them see that Jesus is the Messiah as these crowds yeah they misunderstood what kind of Messiah Jesus was coming to be let's make sure that our families and our loved ones don't misunderstand the type of Messiah that Jesus is but that they will go after Jesus and then secondly just we want to have that same heartbeat is to say yes we want the whole world to go after Jesus we want them all to go follow him again not for the wrong reasons the way this crowd was but for the right reasons we want to see them to see that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world and why and how he's the savior of the world. So, 2 Chronicles 1 through 3, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Hopefully, uh, this has been encouraging to you, and uh, we are excited to join you guys again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.